Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Tonight we're going to be dealing with a very important issue, not that all the others haven't been. It's just that divorce has become rampant in our society, and a lot of people have their own ideas about marriage and divorce. The latest statistics indicate that one out of 1.8 marriages in our society end in divorce. And I suppose in one respect we can almost expect that from the world, and yet the church which for many years enjoyed incredible success in marriage, 1871, one out of one, excuse me, one divorce for every 1,000 marriages in the Christian church, today it's one in every 3.2. So the church isn't doing all that much better than the world around it. And this is an issue that is really plaguing our land. Uh, of course, the family unit is the basic building block of society. As the family unit begins to disintegrate, society begins to crumble. We're seeing it. And so this is a very important issue. And we can go around and canvas people at work or your neighbors and ask them what they feel about marriage and divorce and I'm sure you have a lot of different opinions, but really, it's what God has to say about it that's important. Since He ordained it, designed it, and knows how it must function, He's the only one that really can speak on the subject of marriage and divorce with authority. And so, in Mark chapter 10, it says in verse 1, Then He arose from there, from where? From the area of the Galilee. He was in Caesarea last week. But he was in the area of the Galilee. He arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And says, And the people gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. He has left the area of the Galilee for the last time. He's only a few months now, about six months from the cross. He is now setting his face towards Jerusalem. He is on his way now to Jerusalem to be crucified. He knows that. He knows exactly why he has come. His men, although he has told them what's going to happen in Jerusalem, they're still kind of in a fog about it. They, they still can't seem to get it through their heads. So they're going to be taken off guard, but he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly why he has come. He has come to die. He knows that. He said, I, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He knows that. Not like some that, like the author of the Passover plot that proposed that Jesus Christ was just a carpenter who got a little big for his britches and got a gathering together of men, but eventually wound up, wound up getting himself crucified. Uh, that's not it at all. Jesus Christ came for one purpose, and that was to die. So he's left the area of the Galilee, is moving now towards coming into the area of Judea, but he goes not directly south through Samaria. He crosses over the Jordan on the east side. First of all would be the area of Decapolis up near the Galilee. But he comes down then on the east side of the Jordan River. You say, well, why? We're not sure. Except he's coming down now. He's in Perea, which is on the east side of the Jordan River across from Judea. And that area was barren for many years, but in Jesus' time it had become settled. And there was a large Jewish population there. And he realizes that soon he's going to be going to the cross. And so he's maximizing every moment. As I, and as I study the life of Jesus, it's interesting. 
uh, there's no dead time. Jesus Christ is always maximizing his time. Getting up early to spend time with his Father. Using the, the day to, to teach and to, uh, to heal and to work miracles. And even at this late time, he has withdrawn from the multitudes for the most part, spending a lot of time with his men. And yet now as he's moving towards Jerusalem, uh, the crowds are still coming. He doesn't send them away. He uses the opportunity to continue to teach them. Teach them what? No doubt teach them the things of the kingdom. Teach them about the gospel. Teach them things about God that they hadn't really ever heard from the Pharisees. And so he's teaching them as he's coming down into the area of Judea. And the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Now, we're going to see, the reason he withdrew from Judea in the first place was because it had gotten pretty hot down there for him. They were out to kill him. They were out to find anything they could use against him in a court of law or whatever that would, would get rid of him. So now here he comes back into the area of Judea, and no sooner has he come than here come the Pharisees. They're asking him trick questions. This was not an honest question. This was not a question designed to get information because they, they had honest questions. No, it was a trick question designed to trap him. Not unlike the question the Sadducees came and asked him later on with regard to the resurrection. You know, if a woman is married to seven brothers, each one dies and then the other brother marries her and so on, which one, will she, which, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And he dispelled that one. Uh, and the Herodians came to him about, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Thinking that they had trapped him. Either way, he answered yes or no. They had him. Word of wisdom, he got out of that. And the Pharisees are coming to him now with the first of a series of trick questions, kind of like a theological tag team. Pharisees come, they try their best, they lose. Jesus, you know, puts their question to rest. They go back, the Sadducees, it's our turn. They go and try to trap Jesus. Nobody can trap him. Herodians come. Nobody can get him. But this was a trick question. I want you to understand not only was it a trick question, but it was the hot theological issue of Jesus' day. This whole issue of marriage and divorce was the hot theological potato of Jesus' day. So they figured, because people are already polarized on this issue, whatever he says, we got him. I mean, the question goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. First of all, in Matthew's gospel, it says they came to him and said, Is it lawful, to, or, is it lawful for us to divorce our wives for any reason, as Moses commanded? Well, what they were talking about here was Deuteronomy chapter 24. In fact, keep your finger there. Turn to Matthew chapter 19, because I, I want you to see it in Matthew before we go ahead and turn to, to Deuteronomy. It's the same basic occasion, okay? It's the same time. Uh, parallel passage. Verse 3 of Matthew 19. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now you say, well, where did they get that? Well, they got that from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he had found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and so on. I want you to notice that um, the issue here was the whole the uh, whole issue revolved around the interpretation of found some uncleanness in her. That was the whole issue. 
Okay, well, what does that mean? Because the interpretation of that obviously greatly affects the way you understand the passage. Well, because of that, two schools of thought developed under two different rabbis. You had Rabbi Shammai, who was a very conservative rabbi, and who interpreted this in a very narrow sense. He said, look, an uncleanness only refers to if he marries her and then finds out she's not a virgin, or if while they're married, she commits adultery, that is the only grounds for divorce. And back in the Old Testament, of course, if you read on, you'll find out that if a man married a woman and found out she wasn't a virgin, they brought her to the door of her father's house and they stoned her. Or if they found out that she had committed adultery, the Mishnah said that her and the man who committed the adultery were to be brought to the center of the town and they're to be made to stand in a large wooden box three foot deep with manure and they were to be stoned until they fell face down into this manure and then a tree was to be planted there and it was to be placed in the town somewhere and that would let everyone remember as they looked upon the tree how serious a thing adultery was. So this was a big issue. I mean, this was no light thing. God took the issue of divorce very seriously. Now that was the conservative school, Rabbi Shammai. The liberal school of thought came from Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Hillel was a liberal, and he interpreted uncleanness to mean just about anything. I mean, if she burned his eggs, that was an uncleanness. If she was caught talking to a man in public, that could be an uncleanness. Um, if she talked badly about his mother, that was an uncleanness. I mean, uh, Rabbi Aqaba went as far as to say, if he found a woman that was prettier than his wife, then she would be considered unclean in his eyes, he could divorce her and get remarried. So two very different schools of thought, and I don't have to, I guess you could imagine which was the more popular, right? Of course, Rabbi Hillel. I mean, uh, he was far and away the most popular of the two because people wanted, obviously, to do what they wanted with regard to marriage and yet feel they were still keeping the law. A woman, on the other hand, had basically no rights. A woman was looked upon almost in a sense of property. Uh, she could divorce her husband for hardly any reasons. He could divorce her for practically any, any reason or even no reason at all. She couldn't divorce him except for just a few reasons. One would be that if he became a leper, another one if he took up a, a heinous and hated occupation like Tanner, you know, because it, of course that dealt with dead uh, animals and the Jews felt very strongly about dead carcasses and all. Um, if he defiled a virgin, you know, she could divorce him. If he accused her of not being a virgin and she could prove she was, then she could divorce him and he had to pay her father compensation. So uh, there was only a few reasons a woman could divorce her husband. A man could divorce his wife for practically any reason. And the Pharise this was a hot issue, okay? The Pharisees thought, look, we got him. If he takes the very liberal school of thought, he's going to alienate himself from the conservatives, right? And we want to discredit him in the eyes of the people. If he takes the very conservative approach and says, no, divorce for no reason except adultery, well, that's what got John the Baptist into all that trouble, right? When he accused Herod Antipas of enticing his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, to divorcing her husband and marrying himself and John denounced that said it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife and that wound up getting costing John his life and where were they 
They were in the area of Perea, across from the Jordan River, which across from Judea. Perea was the area of which Herod Antipas was over. over that was one of his areas of authority. So they were in Herod's country. And uh, so they thought, hey, any way he goes with this, we got him. See, we basically have him. But Jesus always had a way of slipping out, right? And, um, and so back in Mark chapter 10, so verse 2, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Matthew tells us they said for any reason, testing him. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Now, he very wisely just tossed it right back into their courts. Well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now, again, you've got to kind of cross-reference this with Matthew 19. Because I think you'll see something here. Verse 4 says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read who made them at the beginning, male and female, and so on and so forth. Verse 7, they said to him, Well, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, that's the concept they had. They had actually come to believe that Moses commanded, if there was an uncleanness in her, it was a command. You had to put her away. Okay, depending on what you, how you interpreted uncleanness, man, a woman had very little... Uh, stability or security in her marriage relationship. I mean, uh, they had come to believe it was a command. You had to divorce. You had no choice. You had to divorce her. And I think at that point, Jesus said, what did Moses command you? And then they backed off in, in Mark 4 and said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Yeah, you better say that because Moses never commanded it. In fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, in that passage, we'll read it in the Hebrew, it's loaded with if clauses. Here's what it says. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and if it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and so on and so forth. Moses isn't commanding anything. He's permitting something. But he's definitely not commanding it. Okay, that's a very uh, important point. First of all, a certificate of divorce was a, uh, a very technical legal document that required a rabbi who was skilled in that area to draw it up. And then it had to be uh, approved by a court of three other rabbis and then filed with the Sanhedrin. It wasn't something that they took lightly and oftentimes it was not easy to find a rabbi who was qualified to write up this certificate of divorce and I think God you know I think uh, the wisdom behind that was maybe by the time they find someone to do it maybe they can reconcile this maybe they can work it out but a certificate of divorce was a very technical legal document and Moses permitted it now let's go back to Mark they said Moses permitted a man to divorce, to write a certificate of divorce, and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the Greek word there is a word that's always used with regard to divorce. Not just legal separation. We're talking about divorce now. Okay? They want to know about this theological issue. Hot issue of the day. Right? Polarize a lot of people. Not unlike a lot of the issues we see in our day. Uh, here Jesus is teaching people the truth of God. He's healing them. He's liberating them from their sins. And the Pharisees want to come and argue doctrine. That's the mindset of a Pharisee. He's not wanting to celebrate. He wants to, to debate. Some of these issues that are debated among Christians today are ridiculous. Let's get into Jesus. Let's focus on the gospel and how it has the power to set men and women free from their past and from sin. And let's stop arguing about non-essentials. However, you always have that where the Pharisaical mindset exists. So the Pharisees didn't care about anything else he did. He want, they wanted to focus on a theological hot potato. They wanted to debate the issue with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even address it directly. He kind of takes it back before Moses, all the way back to the very beginning, and tells them what God intended. He just kind of circumvents their whole argument. He takes it all the way back to the very beginning. He said, in the beginning, God's original intent for marriage, his divine ideal, was that a man and a woman become one. And it was a, a union that was intended by God to last for a lifetime. In fact, Jesus quotes out of Genesis chapter 2, which is, of course, before the fall. This is before the fall now. This is God's original intent for marriage, his divine ideal. It says here that, and it's Jesus quotes right out of Genesis 2, he said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In the Hebrew, it's emphatic. See, we, we're going back to what God designed marriage to be. That's very important. Today, people have all kinds of concepts about marriage, divorce. Hey, look, I don't care about any of that. They didn't create marriage. They didn't ordain it. I want to go back to hear what God has to say. And in the very beginning, God made a man and a woman. And in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. One man, one woman. Obviously, that destroys polygamy. God never intended for polygamy to exist, but he permitted that. He tolerated that also in the Old Testament, just like he tolerated divorce. It also says one man, one woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. God never sanctioned homosexuality or lesbianism. In fact, in the law, he condemned it and it carried a death sentence with it. Uh, as someone once said, God made Adam for Eve, not Steve. So, no homosexuality. And we're going back now to the beginning. What God intended for marriage. And again, I don't care what society says. I don't care how many people get up and say, Hey, God made me this way. No, God did not make you that way. Because the Bible says God forbid it. God denounced it. He uh, condemned it. So, if God condemns it, He couldn't have made a man a homosexual or a woman a lesbian. So, in the beginning, God made the male and female, and God joined them together as one. The Hebrew word there means to glue together. God, through marriage, glues two people together. It kind of tells us that really, a man by himself is incomplete, and a woman by herself is incomplete, and they're really not made complete until they come together as one.
Now that doesn't mean that God can't give some a special, a special grace to be single. And Jesus goes on to talk about this in Matthew 19. He talks about eunuchs who, some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. In other words, they remain single to devote themselves totally to the work of God. God will give special grace to some people, and that's fine. And they're complete in Christ. But the norm is men and women are designed to come together in marriage by God to become one, to complete one another. That's the, that's the norm. Okay, that's the divine standard. That's his ideal. And once God joins them together, and think about it, a man before he's married only knows his mother and father. That, that, that family unit, the strongest relationship that he knows in his life, why would he leave that? To marry a woman, he knows far less than he knows his family, his mom and his dad, to start a new family unit Hey, that speaks of something going on behind. That speaks of God working men's hearts to cause them to do that. You know, to leave mother and father in the strongest relationship they've ever known to start a brand new relationship and a brand new family. God puts that in people's hearts to do that. God creates marriage. All marriages are ordained by God, even pagan marriages, because it's marriage that God instituted. Whether they be Christian or non-Christian marriages, all marriages are ordained by God. They are a divine creation of God in a sense. Even as every child placed into the womb of a woman is a creation of God. And when you kill a child in the womb through abortion, and when you kill a marriage, the common denominator is you're killing a creation of God, both ways. And I believe destroying a little piece of society in the process. But verse 6 says, From the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. In the Garden of Eden, there was only Adam. There was only Eve initially. When they came together in marriage, of course they were one together. There was no other option. If they divorced, there was nobody else to marry. Uh, that's what God was saying. God left them no other options because in God's mind there wasn't to be any other options. One man, one woman coming together, becoming one, one flesh, not one spirit. Even though our, we grow together in a spiritual way, if God would have said they come together as one spirit, that would have meant that marriage was eternal because our spirits go on forever. But God said they become one flesh, which means it's a lifelong commitment until death do us part. Now some people think, even though it's lifelong, it seems like forever, because marriage, if it's done wrongly, can seem like hell on earth. But God brought them together as one in a physical sense. And of course, the act of, of intercourse be, between a husband and wife ordained by God symbolizes that oneness. Of course, literally speaking, the two become one flesh in their children. As each passes 23 chromosomes to the child, and literally that child becomes one flesh. Now there are those who say, well look, any time a man and woman come together in that sexual union, it automatically counts, constitutes marriage because that's what it is. Once they come together in that union, they're married. If you haven't heard that, you will at one point. Well, there's a problem with that. First of all, then it, uh, if that's the case, there's no such thing as fornication. 
because once a person, two people come together, they're automatically married. And far from the act denouncing the act, then, then we celebrate the fact that they're now married. No, uh, that's not true because God did denounce fornication. And in the Old Testament, if a man had sex with a woman before, you know, out of wedlock, fornication, he was required to either marry her or pay her father a, uh, a fine, okay, uh, for defiling his daughter. So uh, it didn't constitute marriage. So don't let people tell you. Uh, the act of physical oneness in the context of marriage celebrates and symbolizes the oneness. But in itself, it doesn't mean they are married, okay? It's just an expression of that oneness that's legitimate and beautiful and blessed in the context of marriage. Outside of marriage, of course, it's destructive and everything else. But verse 9, Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate or let no man divorce. So Jesus takes it back to God's original intent, his divine ideal for marriage. And uh, because they had taken what Moses had said and had kind of perverted it through their broad interpretation, really they made marriage a mockery. They had destroyed, really, the sacredness of marriage, and it was now tantamount to legalized adultery. Because you just marry a woman and have sex with her and then divorce her. Marry somebody else, have sex with her, divorce It was just a way of going ahead and having adultery, you know, having your affairs, and yet feeling like you were keeping the law. Because I'm married to her. Well, yeah, you're married to her until you see somebody else come along and you'll divorce her, see? And, and it had lost all of its beauty. It had lost all of its, its significance. And in the process, it had brought a lot of social chaos into society, and of course, the children are always the innocent victims when it comes to divorce. And we're seeing our society being dismantled, one family unit at a time. Everything is disintegrating because families are breaking down. And of course, the cornerstone of the family is the marriage. And when the marriage breaks down, the family breaks down. When the family breaks down, society breaks down. And so we're seeing it. And I'm convinced one of the things Paul meant when he said in the last days, you would have an increase of rebellion against young, in young people against authority and against their parents was because of the fact the family unit was breaking down. And the roles of husbands and wives were are becoming very confused today. Nobody knows really what their role is, and God forbid you should state it because, man, everyone jumps on you because now you're a chauvinist or you're this or you're that. If you say, well, I believe God ordained a man to go out and work and supply for his family, a woman to basically stay at home and raise the children in the ways of God, not that the man is exempt from any of that, but that's basically what God has laid down. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you're jumped upon and you're attacked and everything else. But I believe that's one of the reasons that we have a society today where young people are out of control. One of the main reasons because nobody knows what role they're supposed to play anymore. Now, that was God's original design for marriage. Of course, when the fall came, everything changed. When man sinned against God, everything changed. Everything got thrown up for grabs. Uh, and God's ideal, obviously, was, I mean, after the fall, very rarely could man ever, if ever, live up to God's ideal, right? I mean, the earth was cursed. Uh, marriage was cursed. One of the parts of the curse of marriage was this, that God said to the woman, uh, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. See, that was the curse God pronounced upon marriage. 
because of man's rebellion against God. Now, people interpret that and say, well, her desire shall be for her husband. Well, that sounds kind of endearing, you know. She's going to have a sensitive heart towards her husband. She's going to love him. and No, not at all. If you go, I think it's just 11 verses farther into uh, Genesis 4-7, the same exact phrase is used with regard to Cain and sin. And God said to Cain, Cain, sin lies at the door and its desire is to rule over you. But you are not to let it. See, God designed the man to be an authority over his wife, but that kind of authority was not dictatorial. It was a loving authority, the same kind of authority that Jesus has over us as our protector, the one who provides, protects, uh, provides for us, protects us, and so on. That was the man's role with regard to his wife. But since the curse, everything got thrown up for grabs. The woman would now try to usurp that place of authority. She would try to rule or to exercise authority over her husband, and he was going to have to force her to submit now. And oftentimes, that just led to a lot of chaos and turmoil in the home. And so marriage has been thrown up for grabs because of the fall. And uh, it's very sad when we see people who are failing to live up to the divine ideal in marriage, whose hearts are so hardened because of sin, they no longer bend or sacrifice or forgive or even to give. Because marriage, of course, is a sacrificial proposition. I mean, it's built, supposed to be built on agape love, which is a sacrificial kind of love. Marriage is not two people giving 50% and 50%. It's two people giving 100% and 100%. It's a totally, should be, an unselfish kind of sacrificial arrangement. And so because of the hardness of man's hearts, God permitted divorce. He tolerated it. It was never his ideal. It was never his perfect will, okay? He tolerated it. Why? Because of the hardness of man's hearts. And he knew if he tried to force people to stay together with those kinds of hearts, it would just cause domestic violence to become, you know, an issue. It would lend itself to open adultery. Okay, I can't divorce you, but I'm not going to be faithful to you. I'm going to go ahead and have my fun. I'm going to have my flings, you know. And that would bring into the family a worse case scenario than a bad marriage. And so God permitted the lesser of two evils, really, is what it was. It was not his ideal, you know. He permitted the lesser of two evils. He allowed them to get divorced. But it was never his real, it was never his design. We still live in a world that is tainted by the hardness of man's hearts due to sin. Uh, everywhere you look, uh, we see problems that can be traced back to the hardness of man's hearts. All of our problems relate back to the heart. And marriage is no exception. Marriages are in trouble today because basically of the hardness of man's hearts. And yet God's divine ideal still stands. One marriage for life. That's his ideal. One marriage for life. Now, those people that soften their hearts to the will of God, humble themselves when problems come and forgive or humble themselves and ask for forgiveness, those who are willing to work their problems out and to sacrifice for their marriage and to please God, you know what? They're blessed. And their children are blessed. And ultimately... Society is blessed because society benefits when people make their marriages work. Now, don't get me wrong. I've heard the argument. You know, my mom and dad stayed together 
and it was worse on the kids than if they had divorced. Well, I'm talking about not people being forced to stay together and therefore, you know, because of some pressure from their family or society to stay, they do stay together, but they hate each other, there's bitterness. I mean, that's not a situation that's going to benefit anybody. I'm talking about people who really try to work together, who humble themselves, who, who uh, you know, soften their hearts for the sake of God's will and so on and so forth and making their marriages work and sacrifice and forgive. Hey, that's, that's a blessing to them, to their children, and to society. However, those whose hearts are so hard they refuse to bend and to forgive or to give or uh, to yield in any way, uh, I'll tell you what, for them, marriage can be hell on earth, and that's certainly not God's divine ideal either, is it? See, this is a difficult issue to deal with. And I wanted to devote the whole evening to it. We could actually devote many weeks to it. It's a serious issue. It's a difficult issue because for a long time the church didn't really have to deal with it too much. You know, one divorce in every thousand marriages, that was pretty good. But today, of course, in the church, one in every 3.2, this is an issue we as Christians have to deal with. And it's a difficult issue because on the one hand, you know, you don't want to make divorce and remarriage so easy and nonchalant that it no longer carries with it the seriousness and impact that it should. Uh, God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2 says that. Uh, God hates divorce. God just came out and said it. I hate divorce. And people say, well, God led me to get divorced. No, God didn't lead you to get divorced. I'm sorry, I don't believe that. God may have permitted you to get divorced. But God never leads a person to get divorced. I mean, it's just one of those things where after a certain amount of time you recognize this person is not ending these uh, extramarital affairs and I've tried and I've prayed and I've forgiven, but the time has come now where I realize they're not going to change. And so I am going to exercise my biblical out and I'm going to get divorced. God permits that. And certainly it's within your biblical right to do that. But that doesn't mean that God enjoys it. doesn't mean he, he hates divorce. That's all there is to it. But I'll tell you this, though. He also hates what happens in marriage when two people stay together and yet take every opportunity they can to hurt one another, to say vicious, hurtful things to each other, where the abuse even maybe becomes physical. I mean, that's certainly not God's divine ideal either. And that certainly doesn't glorify God. And that doesn't honor Him in any way. And so you have this issue here, you know, where you have God wanting marriages to work, and yet there are times when, because of the hardness of men's hearts, marriage becomes intolerable. So what do you do? Force them to stay together? What do you do? Society says, look, you've got to make yourself happy. You know, you've got to do what's right for you. That's a lot of that thinking going on today, and I'll tell you, that's why divorce has become so rampant. As Christians, that advice never goes. It's always, I should live to make God happy. What does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? I should always live as a Christian to make God happy. And of course, God's first choice is that we soften our hearts, we work towards reconciliation and God's divine ideal in marriage. And I believe God has healed many marriages. I believe that where there's a willingness to try, you know, and to yield to God and the power of God, I believe that God, I know God has worked many miracles in this area. But sometimes 
people aren't willing to soften their hearts to really let God work. I do think that when it comes to marriage, it's like any other aspect of our Christian life. It all falls unto, under the category of what Jesus said it's going to take to become a disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him. And I think that too many people in the church today are living for their own pleasures, living to make themselves happy. I think there's a greater issue involved. I think that as Christians, we need to recognize that, you know, there's a greater issue involved in my marriage, and that's the glory of God and my children. We live in a very selfish society, and oftentimes the advice from the world is, look, do what makes you happy. Do what's right for you. God doesn't want you to suffer under the weight of an unhappy marriage, uh, as if the only thing God is concerned with is my happiness. God is concerned about my holiness. God is concerned about me dying to self for the sake of another in the hopes that someday I'll bring them to Christ or whatever it might be. When a missionary goes off into the mission field, he or she knows that I could die over there. But I'm willing to sacrifice my life for these people because I want them to know the gospel. Well, why is it any different in marriage? Why is it that when you enter into a marriage and you find out possibly that your husband or wife is not saved, and sometimes the situation becomes almost unbearable, that you don't put yourself in that position and say, Lord, I'm in a mission field here. You know, this is like a mission field. And I know that if I was over in Africa or over somewhere else overseas as a missionary, I would have to suffer hardship persecution. I would have to suffer a lot of things, but I would do it gladly to see these people saved. Why can't I put the same kind of commitment and sacrifice into my marriage? See, when you start thinking selfishly, yeah, you're going to bail out. When you start thinking like a disciple of Christ, taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following after him, and what did he do? He came down and died so that others might be saved. And then maybe there's a greater issue at stake here than my happiness. Maybe it's somebody else's salvation. Or maybe, even if they're saved, my kids. If I was to bail out, what's going to happen to them? What kind of scars am I going to leave with them? I think that we need to stop doing what's best for ourselves and start seeking God as to what He wants from us. So on the one hand, you don't want to condone divorce and make it a very light, casual thing. But on the other hand, you don't want to condemn anybody who has gone through a divorce either. And that's the fine line. That's the fine line I feel I need to walk. Some pastors say, hey man, no, divorce under no circumstances. Anybody who gets divorced or remarried lives in a continual state of adultery. That's it, period. There is no comfort. There is nothing but condemnation. I'm sorry, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe that the grace and the forgiveness of God have been extended to Christians for a lot worse sins than divorce. I mean, why is it that we can believe God will forgive a murderer, but some people have a hard time believing God will forgive somebody for divorcing and remarrying? That's ridiculous. Is divorce the unpardonable sin? Is adultery the unpardonable sin? There is only one unpardonable sin, and that's the sin of not receiving Christ. So, you know, we have to see this issue even though it's a theological hot potato in our day, we have to see it in the context of Scripture. What does the Bible say about it? If somebody divorces and remarries, and they don't have biblical grounds, does that mean God washes His hands of them? Does that mean they're put on a shelf the rest of their life, they can never do anything for God ever again, and all their lives are living in a continual state of adultery? Does the Scriptures teach that? I don't believe so. 
Jesus went on to say this. In verse 10, it says, And in the house his disciples asked him again about the, the same matter. Now, obviously, he had never talked to them prior to this about this issue. It's obvious because it hit them like a ton of bricks. So much so because they were always, you know, they had grown up, no doubt, with the common interpretation of the Pharisees, which means, you know, hey, practically for any reason, you know, she uh, burns your eggs. That's, that's it, man. You can give her a certificate of divorce, divorce, put her out. And so they had kind of grown up with this mentality. And when Jesus laid it out in a very strict, narrow way, it floored them. So when they got back to the house, they asked him about this matter, and he said to them plainly, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. And in Matthew's Gospel, he went on to say, And the one that marries them commits adultery too. Everybody involved commits adultery. Everybody commits adultery. When you have a situation where people are divorcing and remarrying apart from adultery, you know, they have no biblical grounds. If they divorce and remarry, they commit adultery, and their new partners commit adultery with them. That's pretty serious. People read that, and it's like, oh my God. I had a woman in the church call me not too long ago, weeping. She has wrestled with this issue for 11 years. Ever since she has been divorced and remarried, she has wrestled under the weight of this condemnation that she has been living in a continual state of adultery for the last 11 years. She can't, it's been on her mind every day. She can't sleep. It's caused her to become physically sick at times. Guilt and condemnation can do that. I mean, when you feel you're guilty and condemned, that takes a very serious toll on you emotionally and even physically. Now, seems pretty obvious though, doesn't it? What did Jesus mean? Seems pretty straightforward here, doesn't it? And when you read that, if you're sitting here tonight and you're divorced and remarried, what are you feeling like? I mean, probably guilty. How else can you feel? And if people are not saved and they are divorced and remarried and they read something like that, they hear Jesus say that, wow, I'm guilty. I'm condemned, right? I'm an adulteress. I'm an adulterer. One of the ways you need to see this, and I, and I think the only way really you can read this and really understand what Jesus Christ is doing here is, first of all, remember this. Jesus was always trying to elevate the law of God back up to the place where God intended it to be because the Pharisees had dragged it way down to man's level and were interpreting it in such a way as they were teaching everybody they were keeping the law. And the Bible tells us very clearly Nobody can keep the law of God if we try to keep it the way God intended it to be kept. Nobody. It's too high. It's too lofty for us. Nobody can keep the law of God on a continual basis because we're sinners. We're fallen creatures. There's just no way to do it. But the Pharisees, because it's always man's intent to drag the law of God down to such a level as I can then keep it and feel very justified or self-righteous. And so Jesus was always taking it out of the hands of the Pharisees and lifting it way back up to where God intended it to be. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Hey, you have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Well, what was that designed to do? 
it was designed to teach people that the law of God was not only to be meant was not only meant to govern our outward actions but our inward attitudes. The Pharisees were saying the law says thou shalt not commit adultery. The physical act. Jesus said no God intended it to also touch the heart. So if you've never committed the physical act but you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Now who escapes from that? Who's innocent of that? Right? So what was Jesus doing? He said, look, I haven't come to destroy the law. I have come to fulfill it, right? I have come to elevate it back to where God intended it to be. And then he laid this bombshell on them in Matthew 5.20. And if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even make it into the kingdom of heaven. What did that mean? Simply meant that the Pharisees and scribes were not keeping the law of God. They were giving everybody the impression they were but they weren't. And so Jesus wanted to drive it way back up, way, way up where it belonged. Now, what would that do? That would communicate to everybody as he lifted it way up there and he showed them none of them were keeping the law. What would that do? What does it do when Jesus says, if you hated somebody in your heart, you've committed murder? If you've lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery. What does that do? It makes us guilty. We're all guilty then, right? Uh, we could say, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. And Jesus would say, but the law was intended to govern the actions of your heart, the attitudes of your heart. And so when Jesus interpreted the law properly, everybody was condemned. You say, well, why did he do that? He wanted everybody condemned? Yes, exactly. What was the purpose of the law? To condemn us, to show us our sinfulness. Well, why? so that it would drive us to our knees to look for another way. And that was Jesus, of course. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul said the law was given for one reason, and that was to condemn us, to show us our guilt before God, and to drive us to our knees. And it was our schoolmaster that was designed to lead us to Christ. So you have to understand that when Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about the law, or whenever somebody asked him a technical question about the law and he gave this answer that seemed to be so narrow and it seemed to condemn everybody across the board you have to realize it was intended to do that because Jesus didn't want the Pharisees or anyone else thinking they were keeping the law and thereby were righteous in their own works he wanted all of them to know they had violated the law from the word go they were all condemned sinners and that would empty themselves of all self-righteousness and hopefully drive them to Christ for true righteousness. See? If you don't understand that, you're going to read these words of Jesus, and if you're divorced and remarried, you're going to go away feeling condemned. But you have to realize it was all designed to point them to the cross and the new covenant. Once you accept Christ, there is no more condemnation, right? Romans chapter 8. Tremendous chapter that deals with us not being any longer under condemnation. It starts out by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if you don't understand this, you'll never understand Romans 8. He's not talking about Christians who are walking in the flesh and in the Spirit. He's talking about non-Christians as opposed to true Christians. Those who walk in the flesh in this context, he's talking, it's synonymous with being a non-Christian. 
Those who walk in the Spirit, it's synonymous with being a born-again believer. We sometimes read that and go, he's talking about carnal Christians and committed Christians. And there's no condemnation to those committed Christians who don't walk in the flesh, but according to, no, that's not what he's saying. He is comparing non-Christians with true Christians. And he's saying, a true Christian is in Christ. There is now no condemnation. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? After Paul makes his whole theological argument for us not being condemned any longer because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ, he then goes on to bring it to a climax when he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Is any gonna, anybody going to bring a charge against you regardless of what you do? No, because God has justified you. Who is he who condemns? Is Christ who died? And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Can anybody condemn us? No, because Christ has forgiven us. I mean, is Christ going to condemn us? No, he died for us. Is God going to condemn us? No, he justified us through his son's blood. Therefore, there's no condemnation. And Paul goes on to say in verse 37, or verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And basically, that's another way of saying, Who shall remove us from the body of Christ? Who shall separate us from the fact that we're in Christ? In other words, is anybody going to be able to cause us as Christians to become non-Christians? I mean, once we're saved, can anything remove us from that place of salvation? No. He goes on to say, Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, we are not condemned. We are not condemned. Everything Jesus said with regard to the law and interpreting the law properly was, yes, it was designed to condemn us. It was designed to elevate God's law back where it was so lofty we couldn't attain it. We didn't deceive ourselves into thinking we were keeping it when we weren't. We would look at it and say, oh my gosh, I never realized how far short I have fallen of really keeping God's law. Even as Paul said, I thought I was keeping God's law, but then when I realized the law was spiritual and not physical, I realized I hadn't, I hadn't kept it my whole life. What did that do? It condemned me, Paul said, and drove me to Christ. Now, I'm not trying to make light of sin. I'm not trying to say just because we're Christians now and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness that somehow we should take a very lax attitude towards sin and divorce. I'm not saying that. It's a serious thing. We need to look at it as such. All I'm trying to say is, though, when you read something that... Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, or where Jesus was interpreting the law for the Pharisees, and he comes across very narrow and strict, that's because that's what God intended. And if that makes you feel condemned, it should. It's designed to do that. Because God wants you to know before you're saved. If an unsaved person reads that, and they say, well, gee, I've been divorced and I'm remarried, then I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. And the Bible says, all who sin fall short of the glory of God, and they're not going to make it into the kingdom. Oh my God, I'm condemned. What, what, is that, what does that mean now? It means you need Jesus Christ. See? It means you're a sinner like 
the rest of us. And that should drive you to Jesus. The law was our schoolmaster that God used to, do, to bring us to Christ. Once you've been brought to Christ, there is no condemnation. See? You're a, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Whatever happened before you got saved is over with. I don't care if you were married and divorced 15 times. Before you came to Christ, it's all over with. It's all forgotten, forgiven. I mean, we're new creations. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. At the cross, you got a brand new start. Yes, but I was divorced and remarried after I got saved. Okay, but does that mean that God can't forgive that sin? Okay, so that you got remarried. You've committed adultery. Yes, you've committed adultery. Recognize that. Recognize that because of the hardness of your heart, your marriage didn't work. Or maybe it was the hardness of somebody else's heart. Maybe it wasn't your fault. I'm just speaking now in terms of the person who was guilty, we'll say. So because of the hardness of your heart, you wouldn't humble yourself. You wouldn't forgive. So you got divorced, remarried. Yes, you committed adultery. Can the Lord forgive adultery? If you come and say, Father, as I look back now, I realize I was wrong. I hardened my heart. I wouldn't let you work. I bailed out because I was selfish. But I recognize that. Lord, I know that I've committed adultery by marrying this woman or this man. But Lord, I, I do want your forgiveness. And you know what? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't believe that divorce or adultery are the unpardonable sins. Now, that's not to say that divorce doesn't carry with it many painful scars and consequences. Again, whenever we don't live up to God's divine ideal, we're going to suffer negative consequences, right? And it says when, when it says that God glues two people together so they become one, if you tear that union apart, it's bound to leave some scars, right? I mean, no one can, who's been through a divorce can say it hasn't been painful. And especially when they look into the eyes of their children who are now living apart from them and the kids look at, into the eyes of their father whom they love but yet can't live with anymore, that's going to cause pain. How much better to strive after God's divine ideal? But if you fall short and you don't make it, there is forgiveness available. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all iniquity. To say that a person lives in a continual state of adultery the rest of their life and God can't use them, God is through with them, is ridiculous. It's totally untrue. And I'll give you some examples. In the Old Testament now, gang, this is before the new covenant of grace. You all know the story of David. Remember how that David built for himself a beautiful new palace? Got comfortable. Kicked back, enjoyed the, you know, palatial palace that he built for himself. It says in the Bible that in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David stayed home and sent Joab. So David should, but not leading his, armies in, his army in battle against the enemies of God or Israel. But he got comfortable, complacent, sent Joab. Well, this gave him a lot of free time on his hand. As the old adage goes, idleness is the devil's workshop. So David was uh, restless one night, decides to take a walk on top of his, uh, the roof of his palace, which was functional. It was a, kind of a patio thing. In those days, uh, the houses in Israel were functional. They were like patios. He goes for a walk and he sees a woman bathing on her housetop 
not far from the palace. He's able to see her. She's very beautiful to look upon. He inquires of her about her to his servants, and they said, well, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. David sends some servants, and he just takes her. She comes into the palace, and he lies with her. I mean, it's implied there that he doesn't rape her, that she obviously consents to. Sends her on her way the next day. A few months pass. Suddenly word comes to David, I'm pregnant. Now David's got a real problem on his hands. You know the story? He um, calls for Uriah to be sent home from the battle. He tries to get him to go home and to go home because he figures he'll lay with his wife and this thing will be covered up and he'll think it's his child. And but Uriah has got too much character. He doesn't want to go home and spend a nice comfortable evening of pleasure with his wife knowing that his buddies are still out in the battlefield sleeping in foxholes. He said, man, I can't do that. Next day, David tries to get him drunk, sends him to send him home. Surely he'll go home then. I'll get him toasted. He'll go home and that'll be it. Staggers out to the porch where the servants sleep and he falls asleep there. David figures, man, can't get this guy to go home for nothing. So what he, he sends word back with Uriah to Joab, put this guy on the front line of the hottest battle, pull the guy's back, let him get nailed. Can you imagine that? This is a man after God's own heart. It just goes to show you that even men who love God with all their heart are capable of some of the most heinous crimes. So Joab certainly puts Uriah up there in the front of the battle, pulls back. Not only does Uriah get killed, but other innocent people get killed. Our sin tends to compound itself and involves many other innocent people in the process. Well, word came to David, it's all over with, you know, and Uriah's dead, so David takes Bathsheba to be wife. But if you read the account, she's called Uriah's wife. God does not even recognize her as David's wife. It says that David took the wife of Uriah to be his wife. God, the Holy Spirit, will not recognize that union. The child is born to them, and God says, you are not going to enjoy the pleasures of this child born out of wedlock through such a horrible act as you have committed. God takes the child home. People say, well, why did God punish the child for David's sin? God wasn't punishing the child. God took the child to heaven. What punishment is that? God was punishing David. God was punishing David. And while the child was sick for a prolonged period of time, David wouldn't eat. He fasted. He mourned. He prayed. And he said, who knows? Maybe God will be gracious and spare the child. Well, the child dies. His servants are afraid to tell him because they're afraid he's going to go off the deep end. But David sees them talking amongst themselves and says, what's wrong? The child is dead, isn't he? And they said, yes, king. So David goes in, washes himself, changes his clothes, goes and worships, comes back and has something to eat, and the servants are blown away. They said, we don't understand. David said, well, while the child was still alive, maybe God would be gracious and merciful and heal the child. But now the child is gone. He's going to be with the Lord. The child can't come back to me, but someday I'll go to him. And that was, that was it. And so then it says that after the death of, the, of his child, David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. The story goes that God sent Nathan the prophet who confronted David and, um, about this whole thing. And, and, and you know how he did that with the story of the, the sheep and all the, the, the little ewe lamb that the rich man took from his neighbor who only had one little lamb and it was like a pet and so on. And David was so upset about the whole thing that he said that man should die and 
and um, Nathan said, David, you are the man, right? And, um, but Nathan said, but David, you shall not die. God has forgiven you your sin. See, if anyone was deserving of death, David was. Committed adultery. He committed murder, right? And yet God forgave him. Now, the next child born to Bathsheba and David was Solomon. And they called him also Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. And it says then that David comforted his wife Bathsheba. See, God forgave the sin. And God now recognized the new marriage. Bathsheba wasn't, a, wasn't an adulteress. David was not an adulterer. Initially, yes, God forgave him, blessed the union. Their next son was Solomon, who went on to be king. If the whole thing was cursed, Solomon could never have gone on to be king. And Bathsheba remained in a place of honor all the days of her life and was actually instrumental in the transitional period between David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom. As Solomon took over for David, who was now old and stricken in years. So God didn't put David on a shelf. He didn't look at them as living in a continual state of adultery the rest of his life, and that was it. He wrote them off, took them out of the kingdom. No, didn't do that. Now, my question is, if God can extend that kind of forgiveness and love and grace in the Old Testament, won't he do it at least that much in the New Testament, in the new covenant of grace, that we as Christians and children of God should look at our lives and say, well, because I'm divorced and remarried, that's it. God has written me off forever. I'm, I'm put in a shelf. I'm a... I'm an adulterer the rest of my life. Ridiculous. In John chapter 8, when the woman was, uh, actually it was John chapter 4, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman by the well, she had been married five times, had five husbands, Jesus said, and she was living with a guy. Jesus didn't say you've had one husband and four adulterers. He recognized the union. He didn't, he didn't condemn it. He recognized it. It was legitimate. People say today, well, because I have been married once before, therefore our marriage now constitutes continual adultery, therefore I better divorce you. No. Uh, no. Make this marriage all that God wants it to be. But a further disobedience is never an answer to a prior disobedience. Don't compound your sin. See? God, yes, initially, it's sin. It's adultery. Recognize that. Don't justify it. Repent of it. But then don't go ahead and try to divorce and remarry and because now you're getting things all the more messed up. Again, quickly, in Deuteronomy 24, people say Moses commanded divorce. Now, if you re read this carefully, there's only one command Moses gave here. And it wasn't with regard to divorce. He permitted divorce, but the only command he gave was this. If he finds some uncleanness in her and gives her a written certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, verse 2, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's what? Wife. So even here God recognizes that she's not an adulteress and her new husband is not committing adultery. Okay? If the latter husband detests her, now her second husband, for some reason, detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if, he, if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, 
Then her former husband, this is the only command now, then her first husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. That's the only command. That God said, look, if you do divorce your wife and she marries another and he divorces her, you are not allowed to remarry her. Why did God say that? Because God in his infinite wisdom knew if he didn't make that provision, marriage and divorce would become so ridiculously easy and nonchalant that it would just be used as legalized adultery. A man would have to think twice before divorcing his wife if he wanted to have a little fling on the side because he couldn't remarry her under any circumstance. So God says, look, if you're going to do this thing, I'll tolerate it, but you better think it through. You can't remarry her. If she marries another, that's it. If he, even if he dies, you cannot take her back as your wife. So again, that was applying that into context today. You can't, because you've already divorced, remarried, you can't say, well, we should divorce now and I should go back to my... No, even in the Old Testament, God forbid that kind of thing. So what you do is recognize you have sinned, get right before God, and make this marriage all that God wants it to be. Don't compound your sin and uh, make it uh, worse uh, than ever. Again, this is a big issue, and um, we could spend many weeks on it, really. But I don't think we need to do that. I think we just need to understand that marriage is a serious thing. Oftentimes, young people, teenagers, meet. They're infatuated with each other. They think that they're in love. And, you know, they are burning for one another and they want to get married. And parents oftentimes appeal to them to wait, think it through. You're too young to make such an important decision that will impact you for many years to come, if not the rest of your life. Uh, think it through. But oftentimes they go ahead and opt to go ahead and get married. And so what happens is... They get married, and in a few months or a year or two, when the infatuation wears off, they recognize they are totally incompatible. Should two young people who made a decision in their youth, you know, in the foolishness of their youth, should they have to live with that the rest of their life? Well, I believe God can work a miracle even in that context, but I don't believe to tell them that if they go ahead and divorce, they'll be out of God's will the rest of their life. Lives will be put in the shelf. Whoever else they marry will be continual adultery. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe God is gracious. I believe God is forgiving, merciful. Even when we're Christians and we do this kind of thing, there is forgiveness. But it's a serious thing. God wants us to recognize marriage is a serious thing. And if you marry, it should be for life. You should go into it with your eyes open, mature enough to understand the commitment involved, but it's going to take sacrifice and humility. And when there's problems, there's got to be a softening of the heart. And the greater issue, of course, is the will of God and glorifying Him. And what about the kids? They're also an issue. It's not just my happiness that's at stake. There's a lot of other people involved here. I should go into it with that kind of seriousness. I should fast. I should pray. I should make sure that this is the one God has for me. Because if I do marry and it doesn't work out, and for whatever reason, you don't feel like 
seeking God or asking him for the grace to do it or to make it work and you divorce, it's not that God can't forgive you, but I guarantee you there are consequences. Even after David, God forgave him. He lived with the consequences the rest of his life. He was never the same leader. He was discredited in the eyes of his servants who had held David in such high regard. They had seen this whole sordid issue come to play itself out. They didn't respect David the way they once did. His own kids didn't respect him. The kingdom started to go downhill. The consequences were many. We should never play with sin, any sin, I mean, is a serious thing. And divorce is a sin. God forgives sins, but it's not without its consequences. How much better to seek God for the right person and then to work towards God's divine ideal, which will bring blessing for the married couple and their kids and ultimately society than to have to go through all the heartache and pain that comes with divorce and two people being torn apart from each other and all the scars that it leaves. Uh, yes, God forgives and God can still use you and bless you, but man, why go through all that heartache and pain? Why hurt so many other people? Make sure that you approach this issue with a very serious heart. You've prayed about it. You're not married here tonight. I encourage you, please, don't ever approach something as important as marriage lightly. Fast, pray, make sure you know the person well enough to understand their personality, their character, that you guys have talked, that you want the same things, that she loves God and that you love God and you both want to put God first. Do you want kids? She, I mean, do you both want children? Does one want them and one doesn't? These are issues that are important. Make sure you understand each other before you enter into something as important as marriage. Not that if it doesn't work out, God can't forgive and God won't love you anymore, but how much better to work for her towards his divine ideal and let him bless the whole thing. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we see a country, our country, ravaged by divorce. We see, Lord, the broken homes, the broken hearts, the broken families. We see the scars, the bitterness. We see the children who are the innocent victims growing up bitter and angry and suspicious of anyone because the people that claim to love them have 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 a divorced and now their home which was supposed to be a place of security uh, has been has been dashed to pieces so now they're they're cynical and they're um, distrustful of, of of relationships and I and I just pray Lord that you will help us as your people as your church to understand the seriousness of marriage how beautiful it is Lord how wonderful it is if it's done right it could be heaven on earth and if it's not done right it could be hell on earth help us lord to have marriages that are heaven on earth where people might see us and they might be drawn to you through our marriages lord help us to humble ourselves help us to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow after you in every area of our life especially in marriage I just pray, Lord, that those who are single here among us, you would, Lord, in your time, lead them to the right spouse. If you've given any the gift of singleness, Lord, then 
Help them to realize that is to be celebrated. They're not to be looked down upon because in your eyes, they're special. They've been given a special gift of grace to remain single, to use all their time for your glory. And that should be something that should be praised and commended. But either way, Lord, those of us who are married, Lord, help us to do all we can to humble ourselves, soften our hearts, and to glorify you through our marriages. Lord, we just thank you now, and we ask these things in Jesus' name.